0: Talk Live. We are coming to you live from the New Hampshire Liberty Forum 2010. It's Saturday night and we are live. If you were listening to the last segment, you're a little confused as to what you're hearing now. There's good reason because we're having technical difficulties. We've got them all sorted out. You really, really are hearing the Saturday, March the 20th show now. And I'm Mark. And I'm Gard. Ian's off and uh, you know, have a great time in New York City at the Talkers New Media Seminar. And we are here at uh the uh, the Liberty Forum and it's... Liberty Forum Nashua New Hampshire uh, broadcasting
1: live remotely of course and uh so now we get the opportunity to get in here and tell everybody if you're not here yet get here any way you can because this is a great place for people who believe in freedom
0: so and we're going to deviate from our normal uh programming b- manner by doing a lot of interviews as opposed to a lot of call ins so i will give i will give the telephone number for call ins in the second hour when we have uh David Friedman the huge economist on, uh, and I'm going to have him on for an hour, and, and we can talk to him then. But uh, well, currently, we've got with us uh, Stuart Rhodes from Oath Keepers. Stuart, Stuart, welcome. Hey, what is, thanks what, a lot. What the heck is Oath Keepers?
2: We are military police and firefighters, all who swore the same oath to support and defend the Constitution. And the mission of Oath Keepers is to teach the current serving about the Constitution and make sure that they're on the side of the people, on the side of the people's rights.
0: Uh, Is that a a problem with firefighters
2: these days? Uh, Well, they could be asked to support, um, you know, whether it's breaking down someone's door or flooding the street or whatever else they could be asked to do. Emergency responders could be asked to quarantine people, for example. So, sure, we want them to be be on the same page with the rest of the
0: the police and military who understand the oath. So tell me about some of the things that, uh, you know, tell me what led you to uh, found Oath Keepers.
2: Um, The very dangerous expansion of executive power during the Bush years which has not not stopped with Obama coming in why so the uh the very dangerous um, turning inward of the war powers and the claim that the president can use his war powers here at home that's the main 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 driving force.
1: You know the the fact that you have started this movement and it has become so big and it has gotten so much national attention. Especially, we were joking around before that you guys created this just to tick off Keith Olbermann
2: and uh, Ron Emanuel too. And Rahm Emanuel, I want to give him fits too.
1: Yeah, what a criminal <laughs> criminal element that man is. But but what you have said. The fact that it is so big really should tell people there are alarms going off all over the place in the United States. And what you said about turning the War Powers Act, which itself is unconstitutional, inwards, right. very important. And you can see how things like this have already taken place in New Orleans. People ordered to give up their firearms. Uh, we have the possibility of a new bill being proposed by uh, Ke- uh, by Joe Lieberman and by John McCain, which once more would define Americans as enemy belligerents for arrest and detention
2: right. makes no distinction whatsoever between uh, US citizens legal residents and foreigners in wartime in other words no distinction between us and them yeah um, and there is a clear distinction in our Constitution if you are accused of making war against your own country as a US citizen the proper thing to do is charge you with treason right. and have a jury trial what well, their, their claim is they can detain any American citizen and give you a trial by military
1: tribunal military, instead exactly exactly this is a very very important thing I'm glad we've got, gotten you on here right
0: off the bat now we've got uh, a, I know we have a whole bunch of uh, uh, police and firefighters and um, you know military people that listen to the show what what do you have to say to them?
2: Well basically that when you swore that oath you, when you raised your right hand, that's when you made the choice and the choice was to defend the Constitution you have no right and uh, no authority to act outside of the Constitution. It doesn't make a difference whether you get fired whether you lose your pension. Um, whether you're court-martialed, whatever else that might happen to you, you need to buck up and have the courage to do what's right. Follow the Constitution,
0: and when you're given unlawful orders, you must refuse. Now, Stuart, I'm going to assume uh, that you are, you know, that, that you come from this uh, police, military, firefighter sort of background, and right. uh, you know, I was a paratrooper th- in the army. What's your cred? Okay. I was a paratrooper in the army, and um, so what was the oath that you uh, you swore? Well, my oath,
2: one that mil- the uh, military swears and enlisted. Um, is to support and defend the constitution against all of foreign and domestic and to obey the orders of the president and the officers appointed over you um, pursuant to the UCMJ.
1: That's funny because uh, John McCain told us that when he got in the military, his oath was to defend the nation. It shows you how lost that man
2: is. Right, yeah. Liberty is first and the rule of law comes first, not just doing whatever you think is necessary to defend the the, uh, American people when you're scared. And the founders understood emergency, the Bill of Rights was written for emergencies. Mm-hmm. There's this weird idea out there that when things get really bad, like like Katrina, some bad weather, well, then you set aside the Constitution. That's totally, that's totally upside down with the intent of the founders.
1: It, it does seem also you brought up something as you first described the organization. Uh, and uh, we ought to mention where that where they can find you online. One of the things that, uh, that alarms me is around the various states, uh... here in our state we just talked to the uh... former head of the uh, department of health and human services who's running for governor in the state of new hampshire just chatting and um, the legislature passed a law here that gives the governor the power to declare an emergency to go and seize medical it was it all had to do with bird flu and swine flu and all this stuff go and seize stores of medicine in private establishments like store like shopping malls and stores and things like that to go in and prevent groups larger than a certain number from gathering uh, these are these are emergency powers that totally contradict the Fourth Amendment, and uh, nobody seems to notice except you guys, it seems, and people like those of us here.
2: Right. I mean, there's 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 different levels of um, absurdity, and the highest level of, of absurdity would be martial law, a national call or declaration of martial law, that's, that's nowhere listed in our Constitution. Uh, when you go down f- from there, it depends upon. I mean, I would prefer that if you're going to have emergency response, it should be your state doing it. It should ideally under the under Article one section eight, it talks about the, the militia of the states being used to enforce the laws of the union, suppress insurrections, repel invasions. So it should be us the people um, who do these things. So ideally it'd be union. You that's what a militia union. was. Right. The, the militia
0: was, isn't the national guard. No,
2: it's we the people. That's yeah. why that's why in Katrina they got it completely backwards. And when the weather's bad and there's looters in the streets, that's when the, we the people are supposed to keep the peace as the militia, not disarm the people and leave the looters, you know, running around doing what they want. Mm. So, but but so every level you get down lower, it's it's better for us to be local. But even at the local level, you can not have abuses as well.
0: So, um, if people are listening that are eligible, firefighters, police officers, military personnel that are interested in Oath Keepers, what uh you know what can they do? Go to oathkeepers.org and they
2: can go there and um, we have downloadable information they can pass out. We have a forum that's free to join. Uh, we don't require them to be members to participate in the forum. If you're an average citizen who's never sworn an oath, you can be an associate member if you want to join. You can join as an associate member. If you're prior or current service military, police or fire, you can come on as a full member.
0: But, you know, I love the idea of the people that uh, swore an oath to the Constitution, affirming it and saying that they, you know, they know exactly what that means to them. Right. What a concept, right? Yeah, I know,
2: I was just thinking, <laughs> Keep your obligations.
1: It's, it's so ridiculous, you know, <laughs> the very definition of an oath, it's that's the whole point. But yet, you know, we, we've talked about this before. You have uh, in the in the Heller decision in the gun case, the Heller decision. Uh, Antonin Scalia, at the end of it, even though he claimed it was an individual right, at the end he says, well, rights can be attenuated. Right, and right. It's it just, you can't count on these guys to defend you. You've got to go local, go with your friends, go with your neighbors, and come up with alternatives. It's uh, it's truly remarkable. I'm glad you guys started this up. It's great. And I'm Thank glad you. you're getting people really angry about it. That's <laughs> kind of funny. That's how you know you're on target. You get a lot of flack. Yeah, Oathkeepers.org, right? Yep. Awesome. Awesome. Thanks
0: very much. Appreciate that. Great stuff. You're listening to Free Talk Live, and we are live from the New Hampshire Liberty Forum, and it has been an awesome time. And we'll be back. I will be taking a a brief
1: break because I have to go give a presentation out in the main room, and uh, Mark will be handling things on his own, and we'll talk to you soon. Yep, more interviews to come.
3: the margins of the land of Big Brother comes a new pro-freedom website. The UK Libertarian rails against the country's ridiculous regulation. It's crumbling National Health Service. It's disintegrating government schools and the political parasites, leeching more of our freedom every single day. Visit us at www.theuklibertarian.com.
4: talk
0: live this is Mark Edge coming to you live from the new hampshire liberty forum and uh, it's been a it's been a huge busy day with uh, lots of lots of speakers lots of uh, convention type stuff going on but also there's well there's breaking news uh, there was uh, an arrest at the 420 event that went on here and i'll give you more information on that but right now i have sitting with me thomas naylor uh, thomas you're you're a professor guy and you're you're proposing that well vermont secede
5: <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> okay. To revert yeah. back to our status as it was between 1777 and
0: 1791. So Vermont. So that was at the time of the Articles of Confederation. Vermont was its own republic, and as were all the states at that time.
5: Yeah. Well, we we became the 14th state. Right. But we were independent for 14 years as, as a separate republic.
0: Right under the Articles of Confederation. That's correct.
5: That, okay. I think that's a, the right period of time. Okay.
0: <laughs> so now, um, why is it that you want Vermont to secede from the Union?
5: Essentially, we think that the, um, the U.S. government has lost its uh, its moral authority, its uh, its owned, operate and, and control um, by Wall Street, corporate America, and the Israeli lobby. Um, it's uh, it's unsustainable. By that I mean economically, politically, socially. Uh, environmentally you name your dimension uh, it's uh, it's ungovernable and therefore um, unfixable so the question is do you go down with the Titanic or do you seek uh, other options while there are other options on the table and we consider uh, secession to be one one of those options no essentially won't we won't we out
0: what kind of uh, what kind of steps are you taking to get Vermont out and you know um, I also think people are probably asking well what are we going to lose if Vermont goes so I guess that's two questions. First, what, are you, what steps are you taking to get oh, from A couple of
5: answer? years ago, I was on Bill O'Reilly's show on Fox News, and uh, his response was that uh, the U.S. would lose nothing. He actually offered me a, uh, a bus ticket uh, to move to, uh, to Canada. Well, I and, mean, and, and, uh, I don't think you want to go to Canada, And a real estate agent. No, no. Uh, but uh, the, uh, in, in terms of your question was,
0: well, uh, well, what, what steps are you taking? I'm
5: yeah, to... sorry, the, the steps, the process. Well, the, the, we're taking some of the most exciting steps uh, this year for the first time. Uh, we're running uh, candidates as, um, as unavowed uh, secessionists. We have 12 people running in the 2010 election, uh, one for governor, lieutenant governor, um, eight senate seats, and two house seats, and, and the list is growing uh, each day, all r- running his open uh, secessionist.
0: How many people are in, in the Vermont uh, Senate and House?
5: The, the Senate um, is uh, has 30 people and okay. 150 in the um, in the
0: House. That's a pretty big one for a state of uh, 600,000 people.
5: Yeah, no, it is, it is.
0: I mean, <laughs> just about everybody's represented
5: that way. But we've got a particularly attractive uh, candidate for um, for governor in, uh, in Dennis Steele. Uh, he's a fifth-generation uh, Vermonter. Uh, he runs... Uh, uh, radio Free Vermont, which is an uh, uh, internet radio station that does specializes in Vermont uh, music, uh, very energetic uh, entrepreneur.
0: So now secession movements are, movements are are not new, um, and they they didn't sort of die out after the the Civil War or anything like that. Um, tell me about some secession movements that are going on around the United States. Tell me uh, some of the you know some of the where you got some of the ideas from.
5: Well, the. Um, you know, there's as many as 25 or 30 states who've got some kind of movement, but the most serious ones we think are probably uh, in Texas and uh, in Alaska. Uh, the Texas National Nationalist Movement, headed up by uh, Daniel uh, Miller, got a real um, impetus last uh, a year ago on April 15th on Tax Day, when in one of the tea parties in uh, Austin, Texas, the governor actually threatened secession. Yeah, which which really gave them a high high profile. uh, Yeah, the
0: governor's talking about secession, even if it's just you know for political pandering. I don't care. Yeah, and
5: uh, Miller is a very smart, uh, very uh, astute uh, uh, political guy. Um, So they're they're the although they've been around about ten years, they're really coming on like gangbusters now. And, and then the Alaskan Independence Party is, um, is goes all the way back to the
0: 70s. As a matter of fact, Sarah Palin's husband was a member of, of the Alaskan se- Secession or yeah, Independence right. Party or what it, whatever that, it was. And that's right, yeah. So yeah. they got some press, too.
5: Yeah, yeah. They, they actually, um, back in 92, uh, elected the governor of the state. He was, It turns out he was not a secessionist. He was former Secretary of uh, Interior under Nixon uh, Pickle. Uh, who was at odds with the Republican Party? It was convenient for him to run under the Alaskan Independence label. He ran, and he was actually uh, elected.
0: Now, um, I, it's my understanding that Hawaii also has a pretty, um, a pretty popular, at least amongst the native Hawaiians, popular uh, movement for secession. <laughs> right. I can imagine it, that they probably do. Uh, yeah,
5: you know, they got a good reason to uh, <laughs> to want. Uh, They're
0: still feeling the, pretty much like a conquered so, nation.
5: so yeah, yeah, it's kind of kind of response to gunboat diplomacy back in the late 19th century. Um, the only problem with the Hawaiian movement is it's quite splintered. There are three or four different groups, and some of them want, um, uh, you know, pure um, secession now, independence from the United States. Others are willing to settle for kind of like quasi Indian reservation uh, status. Right. And so um, there doesn't seem to be any any coherence to it. But uh, you yeah. know. There's a lot of action out there.
0: So, um, I mean, people have to hear the idea of uh, you wanting Vermont uh, to be independent, uh, and they they must say, well, that's nutty. Uh, what, what do you say?
5: Uh, yeah, I mean, that's the, one of the characteristics of secession. I mean, Abraham Lincoln really did a number on the American people 150 years ago. He convinced both left and right that secession uh, is, um, is, is is anathema. Uh, you know, essentially what we say is... Um, That if um, you know, just as one has a right to uh, to join a union or or, or join a group, uh, uh, so too does it have a have a right to uh, to exit it. It's kind of just to to deny that one has a right. It's like like having a uh, a marriage with no uh, no possibility of uh, of divorce.
0: You know, I think, and absolutely, any any good contract has an exit clause. Unfortunately, uh, many of the constitutions do not have exit clauses.
5: Um, you yeah, know, one of them is actually the Maastricht uh, Treaty for the Euro and the, uh, the European Union. Mm-hmm. They they left that out. It's very strange.
0: Can't get out of the no. European Union. No, I, I,
5: no, I, no, you can get out of the Union, but, but you can't get out of using the Euro.
0: Oh, okay. The, the, the Euro,
5: gotcha. Once you're the club.
0: Now, um, the... People that, that say that uh, secession won't work because the Civil War happened are kind of ignoring the fact that the United States was a secessionist movement in the first place. It no, had never been done. done. There's No colony of, of any country, of any superpower at that time, had ever seceded and been successful. So, in fact, the United States is a secession movement. The very existence is because of a secession I,
5: movement. I sure was born out of secession in 1776. Uh, I mean, our government uh, tends to support secession movements so. Uh, uh, far away, for example, they were 100% behind the the breakup of the Soviet Union mm-hmm. and and the uh, uh, the withdrawal, the demise of the communist regimes in Eastern Europe, which was essentially splitting with uh, with Moscow back back in the 1980s. We've supported uh, Taiwan's secession from uh, from China. It's just when we when it gets too close to home, for example, our government doesn't want any part of Quebec's secession. Yeah,
0: and, you know Quebec. It's interesting because Quebec voted just narrowly, very, very close, narrowly, in 95 in uh, yeah 1995 to right. remain in Canada. And I, you know, I, I don't know what I thought about that at the time, but it was it was interesting nonetheless. Uh, nonetheless, and um, now, would if Vermont decided to secede, would you do it by majority vote, or how how would that happen?
5: Oh, the process that we favor is. Um, I mean, the, why um, running for the legislature is important is we need to get a majority so that we can call for a uh, statewide convention to consider articles of secession. And since we have like 180 people in the legislature, let's say, um, a convention of maybe 200 people, and there I think we would want like at least a two-thirds vote because the name of the game is uh, acceptance, credibility, and legitimacy, not a simple majority.
0: Now, if people are interested in this, and I, I know we actually have three Vermont stations on right now, if people are interested, not, not that you have to be in Vermont to be, um, you know, helpful in this, but if, if people are interested in the idea of Vermont independence and, or independence for a state in general, what can they do to get a hold of you and, and uh, get
5: involved? Well, they could they check out our website, which is vermontrepublic.org, uh, if they're interested in secession in general. There's a quite uh, exciting new website called secessionnews.com that monitors secession movements all over the world, but particularly in the United States.
0: We do talk about it here. I am, I am for the independence of New Hampshire and Vermont, for that matter.
5: Fantastic.
0: So thanks. Uh, th- thank you for ha- being here, uh, Dr. Naylor. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Free Talk Live. We'll be back.
5: Thousands of years ago, from the time of Moses to the time of Alexander the Great, Julius Caesar, and beyond. TrustedCoins.com brings you an incredible selection of authentic Greek, Biblical, Roman, and Byzantine ancient coins, all certified authentic by world-renowned numismatic expert, Ilya Slobin. Transport yourself to the distant past now at TrustedCoins.com.
0: Free Talk Live, we are coming to you live from the New Hampshire Liberty Forum at 2010, as if you didn't know the year. And uh, it's Mark with you. And Garn. And uh, we're doing interview after interview. Next hour, I'll have the phone lines open so that people can call in and talk to uh, Dr. David Friedman. But for right now, we're doing some interviews. And with us, we've got right now Ryan McGuire. Now, Ryan, there was an event today here um, at the Liberty Forum, unrelated to it, but uh, many of the participants participated. Tell us about the event and what happened.
3: Well, there was. Um, Throughout the year, um, the Free Staters and and local New Hampshire Liberty activists have been doing 420 celebrations um, for marijuana decriminalization in New Hampshire, and we thought, well, we've been doing this all year, and we should get the people that are visiting um, Nashua this week um, involved with that, kind of as an immersion program for civil disobedience here. So we hosted a a 420 celebration today in Nashua, and it, it turned out spectacularly um, I'd say there was a, about 120 people showed up today um, in downtown Nashua and uh, it, it, it went people up. were
0: smoking pot and things were going along the Abs-
3: absolutely yeah deal. yeah and uh, the cops so uh, I, I, I saw a couple of cops throughout the event but they just kind of waved at us and smiled and, and went on went on their way but
0: yeah the, the cops really haven't been cracking down on these events for one there are a whole bunch of people And to you know, they wouldn't even know what to do with them. And you know, secondly, these these folks really aren't harming anyone.
1: Was this just in 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 the Keene example, or in other places too, where they where they haven't been cracking down? Manchester, they've started them. Have they done them around the Nashua area very very much?
3: uh, As far as I know, this is the first event in Nashua itself. Um. Um, So I mean, whatever response they were going to do, it it, would have been unprecedented either way. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Yes.
1: Good point.
3: Yeah. Um. So they they did show up, and they showed up in. In force and today.
1: Maps. Well, I have to tell you, Ryan, I, I mentioned to a couple of people. I was working today, and I am on one, on the main route where I work is right on Amherst Street. Mm-hmm. And you were at the intersection of Amherst Street and Main Street, or something Correct. like that. And uh, you're just about you know two miles down the road. I heard. Si- I thought there was something incredibly crazy going on. It was siren after siren after siren going down there. They, they had every cruiser.
3: I'd say I counted about 20 cops there in in total, and that's that's the largest uh, police response that I've seen at the 420 res- before. I mean, Keen Keen was a was a very very close second, but I mean.
1: Now the sequence of events behind how this happened, though, it wasn't that these cops initially came out. What you were there with a group, and I've heard that there were there were undercover guys there.
3: There were um, th- th- those were the first cops that I saw. Um, they were kind of like in. Uh, they were undercover, but they were uh, very conspicuous <laughs> in their undercoverness. Um, they were like wearing like red socks uh, shirts, and, uh, very movie esque. Uh, they they were having fun time being undercover cops. Yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, the, the they arrested three people in total. Um, uh, a, a local Nashuan, uh, I think it was a 17 year old um, named Lewis. Um, he he had just seen us there and and, and got involved. Um, along with um, Keens, David Cruz, and uh, Catherine Bleich as well, mm-hmm. um, the the I'd say this is typical um, from from my uh, case study. But um, out of 120 people there, there was one black man. He was the one that was arrested today. It's
0: strange, you know. They got a a a crowd of 120 people, and and, you know, you don't know what exactly they're thinking. But um, there's a crowd of 120 people, and there's uh, one black guy, and that's the one guy they tried to arrest. They didn't come in in mass trying to arrest anybody. They just arrested one guy. Right. Any ideas why? I, I mean he's smoking smoking that's
3: the only yes. surmise I, I, I and,
1: and he was from the Nashville area, that that particular man.
3: Correct. Right? He, okay. he he wasn't he wasn't um there as part of the Liberty Forum or Alt Expo or anything like that. He, he wasn't part of the fr- original right. um, invite list or anything like here. that. Yes. Right, right. There, there was there was just an enormous amount of foot traffic and, and, and yeah. cars going by and, and people people joined us off of the street.
1: Wow. So that's incredible. Now when they when they came after this guy, you guys responded, right? Oh yeah, I mean it was it was
3: it was almost what do you mean immediate. Responded? Yeah, it was almost how, immediate. How um the 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 entire group just kind of I, I don't know, it's, it's kind of like this bat sense kind of thing, mm-hmm. you know, you you kind of feel like something's not right and 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 we all just kind of meandered over and and sure enough there there was there was the cop and they were they were handcuffing the guy and uh, and i'd say I'd say people handled themselves very well. Um, nobody nobody got violent. Um, people were obviously um, uh, enraged by 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 the cop's um, attitudes. So towards... what were the
0: reactions like? I mean what was happening? Um,
3: the, the as the as the the cop were putting the 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 seventeen year old uh, into the into the vehicle, several people were were um, you know calling uh, calling out the cop's um, violent behavior that they were um, targeting, essentially racially profiling this person. From our perspective, that's what was happening. Obviously, I don't know what's going on in their minds. but
0: Now, you said the um, the, the individual was 17 years old. Did anybody in the 420 celebration give this kid marijuana? Or
1: um...
3: I don't honestly know.
1: Okay. Hmm. So now from there, things escalated because you guys responded, and I heard that uh, people started to sort of, I don't know how close you were to the police, but sort of, you know, call out the police. probably say, taking video video of it yeah. from the start, and uh, the police must have called in for backup.
3: Uh, at, at some point, they they obviously did, um, but it, the the response was so quick. I mean, so they were ready. I think they were ready. Um, they, they they had they had a canine unit out there. That's the first time I've ever seen uh, a canine response to this. I mean, it was it was eerie. Yeah, the guy dressed all in a very dark blue, almost black uh, suit, and the dog was barking like heck you know
1: what did the what did the approaching officers say or the arresting officers say what did they say to you
3: they were very silent they were almost dumbfounded as to what kind of a response we could do because the 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 activists here are just very very eloquent in calling out the violent tendencies of these cops and honestly i think the cops were a little afraid in their own psyches um well, I what? think I mean That's there are the how 20 respond. people
0: who are yelling at them and that right. kind of thing. I would right. imagine they were afraid. Right. So I I, I don't I, I don't, I'm not surprised that uh, backup was was called. I mean that makes perfectly good sense as mm-hmm. to probably protocol. Mm-hmm. Um, so how many people got arrested in total? What happened? Three.
3: Um, uh, so the the first um, guy Lewis got arrested, and then I uh, the, the next thing I saw was was David Cruz on the ground, um, and he um, was. From my perspective, practicing some um, non-compliance techniques, you know, going down to the ground, um, folding his arms together so that they could not cuff him properly.
0: I hate it when he does that.
3: At that point, the cops maced him. Oh wow! And and it was at that point that I saw Catherine um, uh, getting Catherine in their faces, you know, um, essentially confronting them. Why are you macing this uh, non-violent um, person? And uh, that's when they... They gave her a... They, they, yeah.
6: Interesting.
0: <laughs> wow. David's a friend of mine. Um, you know, I I, you know I'm, I... I hate the idea that this happened to him. Yeah, okay. Well... No uh, surprise to me, um,
1: but... Yeah, yeah. Well... Yeah okay now they are currently sitting in Nashwood jail
3: yes we, we we followed them down to the to the police station directly afterwards and we we were there for two, about two hours and
1: this this of course is because they were threatening other people and, and dangerous to them by holding uh, a plant substance <laughs>
3: yeah or something so, yeah uh,
1: of course I'm really glad aren't you glad Mark because I'm left she's a crow man I, what
0: would we do? It sounds like a terrible situation all around to me.
1: Hey, wow, yeah. So that's good that they've got them, you know, behind some bars yeah. and stuff, and they're it, spending people's it, money to hold them. That's, that's
3: as far as I know. They have released Lewis um, on a, on PR bond, but they're still holding David and Catherine. Oh,
1: so he had to pay, but he's out now. He's a, he could be here. <laughs> oh my god, yeah. I gotta get out of here. He could
0: be lurking about. What am I gonna do? Uh,
1: uh, Ryan, uh, thank you very thanks, much Ryan. for the uh,
0: the update on this, sure. and uh, we will keep people posted on it. If you have existing foreclosures, bankruptcies, judgments, liens, collections, late payments on your credit file, you need cleaningcredit.com. They can help you with any kind of derogatory uh, credit reporting situation. And they, it's a law firm down in South Florida. And But well, anybody can go uh, to cleaningcredit.com. That just happens to be physically where they are. It's the credit repair law firm chartered, and they can help you to increase your credit scores and give you professional help and education on your credit. And it's a monthly fee. It's extraordinarily reasonable, and anybody who's buying a car or a house needs to have their credit checked because this can save them hundreds, if not thousands, of dollars. Yeah. Cleaningcredit.com. We are live here at the New Hampshire Liberty Forum, and it's been, you know, one interview after whirlwind. another.
1: Absolutely, and, and you know, just a quick comment about our conversation with Ryan a little bit yeah. earlier. Um, and uh, I'm very interested in getting Ryan and a number of other folks. I want to do my little portable interview things for, for the website over Liberty Conspiracy. And what gets me is, Mark, we talked about this before. My brother's an attorney around uh, around this area. And uh, uh, he has had numerous run-ins uh, for clients with the, the National Police Department. And uh, they are some of the most diehard, tough, and sometimes nasty guys in the state
0: different the departments have a sort of different sort of corporate conversation yeah. um, some some departments are much more mayberry and some departments are much more swat team and uh andy griffith is
1: long gone in some cases yeah
0: <laughs> i could <can> see <laughs> it. free talk live we'll be uh doing more interviews and uh, opening up the phone lines here in the next hour with uh dr david friedman all right
7: Attention, active and separated U.S. military personnel. This message is just for you. You're entitled to benefits that are not available to the general public. You deserve them. Your family deserves them. And we want to make sure you know about them.
4: This is Tim Lewis of I Freedom Direct and a veteran of Operation Iraqi Freedom. Did you know VA programs can allow you to buy a home with no down payment? or refi with cash out up to 100% of your home's equity, and because of your service to your country, it's usually easier to qualify for a VA loan than a conventional loan. On your feet! And get all the details at varadio.com
7: iFreedom Direct Corporation is a private lender approved by the VA and licensed in most states. In certain states, restrictions and limitations apply. For a current list of licenses, disclosures, and all benefits, go to varadio.com or call 800-900-VA-LOAN. Varadio.com.
0: Free Talk Live. We are coming to you live from the New Hampshire Liberty Forum. It's Mark with you. And guard. And uh, we've been doing interview after interview after interview. And we've got a, one that's scheduled for to go three segments here, and it's with Dr. David Friedman. So if you want to give um, call in for with your questions for Dr. David Friedman, uh, well, you're welcome to do that at 800-259-9231. It's 800-259-9231. That's the SACL-CAI Phone line and
1: you know Mark, as we introduce Dr. Friedman, uh, what's what's fascinating is we could easily fall into uh, I could fall into uh, all sorts of memories of uh, being a teenager, maybe 20, uh, picking up Dr. Friedman's book Machinery of Freedom, Freedom and thinking about how amazing it is that over time you get to actually talk to these people and become familiar with them, and meet them as real people. But there's so much stuff to soak up. Dr. Friedman, welcome to the program. Thank you very much for joining us on happy Free to, Talk Live.
8: Happy to be here.
1: And it is a great honor. You've been very influential for so many people and uh it's good to have you here at the Liberty Forum. Boy, now, terrific.
0: You, you, today you gave a speech on um you know, on market failure and how market failure exists and people that deny market failure are you know, denying reality. However, market failure is significantly better than government failure and government failure happens significantly more often.
8: That's not the way I would have put it. I would have said that it's a mistake to assume that market failure is about markets that market failure is a general problem in human beings coordinating their activities it occurs on markets it occurs in a political system and it occurs in a variety of other contexts it is a more serious problem for the political alternatives to the free market than it is to the free market but it's a problem for both of
1: One of the things is it's fascinating that, that you should talk this way and I did not get to see your speech unfortunately I was working um, but uh, David what what fascinates me is markets are constantly the nature of the market is the information loop system that it feeds back on itself and so the participants the assorted people in the market are constantly making adjustments if they do
8: make mistakes. But and, I'm not talking about mistakes. That's it. What, what I mean by market failure is a situation where rational behavior by individuals does not lead to rational behavior by the group.
4: Yes.
0: Now, so give the, the exa- you, you gave an example which I felt was awesome, which was the situation of a foot soldier. Um, yeah, the example
8: that I, I started with, I think I gave a couple, uh, was to imagine that it's a thousand years ago. And you're one of a line of soldiers with spears, and they're all pointing in one direction because in that direction there's a bunch of other soldiers on horseback with lances who are charging at you. And the question is, what should you do? Should you run or should you stand?
0: And I would think, you would think, at least when you watch movies, most of them stand there with the spears stuck forward.
8: And the first calculation you do is to say, if we stand, with luck we can stop their charge. Some of us will get killed, but most of us will survive, whereas if we run, horses can run faster than we can. And the mistake in that argument is that I'm asking what we should do, not what I should do. That I, as an individual soldier, don't control the men to my right and my left if all of if everybody else stands and I run since I'm only one man out of five thousand or so it won't have much effect on the chance that the charge will be stopped and I won't get killed and if everybody else is running I'd better run first or else I'm certain to get killed uh, therefore it is in my rational interest to run it's in everybody else's rational interest to one, run and almost all of us get killed when we might have survived if we had stood so that's a striking example of a situation where people are not making a mistake each one is correctly calculating his interest but my action affects you as well as me your action affects me as well as you each of us calculates on the effects on himself and therefore i take an action which benefits me and harms the rest of you everybody else does the same thing and we're all worse off as a result. Uh, i ran through several other examples that i would argue that's what market failure really means and there are some situations on the free market that work that way there are many situations on the political marketplace that work that way, and there are other situations.
0: Right, because the difference, I guess, with a um, in a marketplace, if, if something fails, and certainly we've seen businesses fail and, and things, and that's not exactly what you're talking about. But it's not at all what I'm talking. Right, about. Um, um, uh, but if a government, fa- you know, has a has a market failure, as it were, it's a monopoly situation. You have no way to sort of avoid dealing with it. Um, but the but
8: frequently in the market case what market failure means is not a business fails but a business doesn't exist that the typical case of market failure is where there is some product or service that would be worth producing where the value to the consumers is greater than the cost of producing it and it doesn't get produced so your point about that companies can fail really has nothing to do with that. So understood if you, if you think about what economists refer to as a public good problem, and just as market failure isn't really about markets Public goods doesn't, to an economist, mean goods that the government produces. It means goods where the producer can't control who gets them. So that a radio broadcast or a variety of other things, a flood control dam, let's say, benefits everybody downstream whether or not he chipped in to pay for the dam. And so the argument is that even if a flood control dam would produce benefits of $10 million for people downstream and only costs $5 million to build... Since the entrepreneur who builds it isn't in a position to say to each person downstream, you "You don't pay me, you'll get flooded, uh, he therefore may be unable to raise the money. So the typical market failure problem is one where something is worth producing and not produced. And in in the political context, one of the most important forms of market failure is what economists call rational ignorance. Which means the fact that voters have no incentive to gain all the information they would need to gain in order for democracy to work the way it works in our classrooms, the way it's supposed to work.
1: They'd have to devote so much time to it that they would take a lot of time to do their regular job.
8: Take maybe not that much, would take a lot of time and effort to figure out how their representative voted on each bill, how he should have voted, and so forth. And they get no benefit from it because. My single vote is very unlikely to change the outcome. Yeah. And if by a very unlikely chance it changes the outcome that I'm sharing that benefit with everybody else, uh, I'm getting a small fraction. So <laughs> it's not in my rational interest to be an informed voter.
1: Speaking with uh, David Friedman, uh, David Friedman, uh, your website it's daviddfriedman.com. Correct.
8: Yes, if I if I had applied for it about 3 months earlier I could have gotten it without <laughs> the middle initial. <laughs>
1: All right. Well, it's, it's the marketplace in a way. Yes. Um uh, David, a question. Uh, obviously no, no system is perfect, and and so the the question is what s- addresses these problems best, and what causes and exacerbates these problems. Uh, and uh, clearly, uh, those of us who look at the free market versus government, uh, we have an argument that says government exacerbates these problems, government presents more op- opportunities for the, for these failures to occur, and spreads the failures onto more people in many instances. Uh, with the marketplace, do you see that the market? For example, the the example you gave with the with the soldiers, um, that's a final problem for those guys. Mm. Um, in many cases, in markets, there this might be analogous to some other groups of soldiers seeing what happened with those guys. Would that be a possibility? It's not the group
8: of soldiers. There is in fact a solution to that problem, which uh, is has itself become a cliche, mm. namely burning your bridges behind you. That one solution to that problem for the general is that he marches his army across a bridge, lines them up, and then has a couple of people burn the bridge. And now the soldiers say, "Well, if we stand, we might survive. If we run, we certainly won't survive. So we have to stand."
1: So you're changing that's, changing the setup of the that's game. That's right.
8: And but, I, but, yeah. but but it's true. There are lots of cases where you can change the situation in a way that reduces or eliminates market failures. There are others where you can't. So the. The mistake I think that supporters of the market sometimes make is to try to claim the problem doesn't exist, rather than to say yes, it exists. But it ultimately exists because someone is making a decision where other people are bearing some of the costs or getting some of the benefits. That can happen in the market, as in my flood control
1: dam. Sure,
5: absolutely.
8: But that's the normal situation on the political system. That most people, whether you're voting or whether you're a representative or whether you're a bureaucrat. The decisions you make mostly are imposing costs on other people,
1: and and the incentives of those people who would be voluntarily entering into such a group would would they, they would be incentivized to try to investigate would they or would they not be incentive incentivized to try to investigate to check the possible risks more than now government about political
9: would system or a, or a, in a in a in or a voluntary
1: a market. market system would they be more incentivized than in, in the government system in, to check and say well let's
8: see what problems we might run into I would have said that in a market. If there is a way of solving the problem, it is likely to be profitable, because the problem means that there is something worth producing that's not being produced. If you can figure out a way of producing it and getting a reasonable amount of the benefit, that's to your your benefit, but it may or may not be doable.
0: Free Talk Live, you can call in with your questions to Dr. David Friedman at 1-800-259-9231. That's 800-259-9231. Dr. Friedman is probably the premier uh, anarcho-capitalist thinker of our time.
10: Are you moving to New Hampshire for the Free State Project? Maybe you are already here and need to find a place to call your own. Mark Warden, the Porcupine Realtor, will help you find the perfect property. Do you want a home with 50 acres of land? How about an income-producing building? Perhaps a cabin on a lake or a condo in an urban area? Invest in liberty and property. Contact Mark Warden, Porcupine Realtor. See his banner ad at freetalklive.com.
0: Free Talk Live, we are coming to you live from the New Hampshire Liberty Forum, and it's Mark with you. Oh, there you are, Guy. And it's Garth. Thanks, <laughs> nice, Mark. And its uh, uh, I want to tell you real quick about the world's largest machine gun shoot and military gun show. It is April 9th through the 11th at Knob Creek Gun Range. It's fun for the whole family with machine guns and mil- flamethrowers for rent. Helicopter rides and 800 tables showcasing handguns, rifles, more and more. It opens at 9 a.m. Ten dollars per person at KnobCreekRange.com. That's KnobCreekRange.com. We have with us uh, Dr. David Friedman and um, you're a premier economist, and we've been talking about uh, you know economic stuff and market failure and things like that. And I've got a call for. We've got a call that's come in. It's Dave from Virginia calling in on 941. Dave, are you there? I'm going to grab those headphones
1: yeah. here.
11: David? Yes, I'm here.
0: And we'll see if we get David on the line. Have we got David?
11: Yes, I'm here.
0: Dave in Virginia, going once.
11: Yes.
0: Going twice. Nope. I'm here, I'm well, here. There, there he is. He is. <laughs> Dave? With your question? Hello? Hello? Something wrong with the phone lines coming in. Yeah, we'll see if you can call. Oh, what a surprise on a remote broadcast. I have a question, Doctor Friedman. <laughs> so you were talking during the break about societies that have existed without uh, monopoly coercive governments. Can you give um, can you give me some examples? Sure. Uh, there have been a
8: variety of what we would think of as relatively primitive societies that were what anthropologists refer to as stateless societies. And one of the Indian tribes, and I was just trying to remember the name because I confused them, but it was whichever of the Plains Indians wasn't Cheyenne or Kiowa. Okay. Uh, in the southern uh, Great Plains uh, were a society that had nothing you could recognize as a government. Basically, the sense in which they had a chief was that... An individual could say, I'm going to have a raid and go attack Texas or go attack Mexico. Anybody want to come along? Uh And he was then the chief of that war party until they got back. And anybody who stayed in the war party was supposed to follow his orders, but they could all leave. But there was nobody who, like a government, had the job of ordering other people around. And no conscription, nothing like that? No, there was no conscription. It was a society where warfare was both profitable and high status. Hmm. Uh, it was a militarily very effective society.
0: Sounds they, like the Crow.
8: They, it's not the Crow. Okay. Uh, the They held up expansion across Texas for about 20 years, despite a relatively small population compared to the year to the whites and less good weaponry. Uh, and so that would be one example. Okay. And I'm not an anthropologist, but certainly those aren't uncommon in the historical Record. I don't know, however, of anything like a large modern developed society without a government. Although I think it would be a fine idea.
1: <laughs> would, we, would we be uh, remiss in in uh, in saying then, uh, David, that um, those people who would be critical of the stateless society, in that they say it will always devolve into constant warfare? Uh, are, would they be correct? I, I think about examples like uh, you mentioned uh, Viking Age Iceland and the Goddard system, uh, more of
8: a, a religious sort of. Society. It wasn't a religious society, particularly. Interesting. Uh, when I it converted it, from paganism to Christianity, yeah. I think fewer than ten people were killed in the in the conflict over doing that. So. Now
1: their their system was based on uh, the Goddard
8: system. They, they had a, a bundle of rights that essentially they could. Ex- we're we're talking now about Iceland basically from about the 9th century on, mm-hmm. that the history of Iceland is, starts out in Norway. Yeah. That you had a Norway that consisted of a bunch of small kingdoms with not very powerful kings. And a man called Harald Harfager, who was one of the kings, started conquering all the others and put together what we think of as the Kingdom of Norway. Mm-hmm. And a number of the people who lived in Norway didn't like this result. Uh, the, the Norwegians at the time had two major uh, professions, uh, farming and piracy. Uh, and so a lot of the ones who didn't like it loaded up their longboats with uh, themselves, their relatives, and as much of the farm stock as they could fit and set off for Iceland, which had been recently discovered. Sure. And that happened in 870 A.D., In 930 AD, they ended up setting up a set of uh, institutions, which then finally collapsed only in the 1260s. So it lasted for something over 300 years. And
1: if I'm if I'm mistaken, I hopefully I'm not mistaken. It was based on, uh, and I think I I think I gathered this from yours. It might have been one one of the uh, documents on on Viking Age Iceland. They had the Goddard system, but also they basically those who built temples.
8: That's where had a judicial system within. That's really that's a misleading way of putting it. Okay. That is they had a system in which there were a set of people, thirty nine people. Uh Gothi is the singular, Goðar is the plural. Mm-hmm. It's usually translated chieftain, but that's very misleading because it wasn't a tribal system. Mm-hmm. Uh and what a Gothi had was a bundle of rights that meant that an ordinary Icelander plugged into the court system through a a, a single Gothi. So that a Individual farmer basically selected one of these 39 who he'd be connected to. He could change if he did. They didn't get along. Uh, and then if he was in a legal dispute, what court the dispute ended up in would depend on who his Gothi is and who the other person's Gothi was. So it's a little bit like sort of state citizenship if you think about cases of that sort.
0: Okay. Now I, I do. We do have Dave from Virginia, and I wanted to get the, that, that question, Dave. And I would better get my headphones on. All right. <laughs> Excellent. Dave?
11: Yes, do you hear me? Got you now. Great. Uh, My question basically is, a a little background, I'm an uh, engineer, I own a business, I have an MBA, and I have found it incredibly difficult to shop for health insurance for my employees. There are so many different plans, and so many different premiums, and so many different deductibles, and maximum out-of-pocket, and so forth. So basically my question is this, wouldn't you agree that when when certain industry is so confusing, such as financial, banking, and insurance, that your average consumer or even your above average consumer cannot understand it well enough to comparison shop, wouldn't that introduce a significant amount of inefficiency in that market?
8: Well, that would that could certainly be a cost. On the other hand, if it was really that large a cost, you would think that there would be firms that would sort of standardize their products and try to offer simpler plans and so forth. Now, so why some would, of the why diffic- would,
11: I would just say, why would they try to standardize their product uh, so that it, they can be competed uh, compared to another product? It seems like the insurance and finance industry is just taking advantage of this and getting incredibly bloated in our country.
8: Well, on the other hand, you observe in lots of areas that you do get standardization. If you think about computers or digital cameras, they often use the same terms to describe them. You know, how many megapixels is it? What's the zoom? And so forth. Mm-hmm. And you want to do that because the customer is going to say, if I can't make any sense out of what you're selling, I'll buy from somebody who I can make, I can make sense out of. Now, the health insurance is complicated by the fact that it's a heavily regulated industry, that what they are allowed to provide is going to depend on state law, and I suppose in the near future probably on federal law uh, as well. But I don't see that standardization is a reason why you need some kind of interference, because where customers value standardization, then those people who standardize will get customers, and those who 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 don't, don't, won't. Again, you know, think about firearms, for example. Practically nobody makes a 23 caliber rifle. At least I haven't seen any out recently.
0: (laughs) Nor have I. Uh, Thank you, Dr. Friedman. Uh, We'll be back with you, and uh, it's Free Talk Live. Keep listening. 1 800 259 9231, and we are here live at the New Hampshire Liberty Forum 2010. It's a huge crowd, hundreds of people, and it's it's awesome to be here. I I mean, at the forum, not here in the room. But both in the room and the forum, Mark, it's good to be here with you. I'm filling in for
1: Ian, of course. That's
0: Gardner and Mark, and we have with us a very important gentleman, uh, Dr. David Friedman, and we've been talking about well, all over the, the board, and Gardner, you had a line of questioning you were going with, and I just wanted you to continue following up with uh, Dr. Friedman.
1: Well, uh, David David took our call earlier uh, addressing something. I wasn't sure whether he wanted to expand on that, but uh, we had a call a little bit earlier about uh, insurance and so on and, and the complexity of insurance purchases and things like that and the, the cost-benefit. Analysis uh, seem very clear that some people want to have a lot of different alternatives and choices in all the different products. Uh, am I wrong, David? And, and that seems to
7: be. On
8: the, the other market. hand, there are also advantages the other way. Yep. And you therefore have markets that give both very standardized products and uh, products with lots of. They alternatives. respond.
1: Yes. Uh, yeah. I, I, I'm very interested. Uh, we we're talking a little bit about the so-called stateless society and so on, and and uh, we opened the conversation talking about market failure. And um, one of the things that fascinates me is that so many people, it's an on-off switch. Well, you know, if markets if markets don't do the right thing, well, obviously government's got to do it. And I know that the, a major part of what, what you've described to people is how, how government exacerbates some of this. I wouldn't have put it th-
8: in terms of exacerbating, because yes, it's, yes. it, it's not that it makes the private market market failures worse. It's that the same things that occasionally make the private market make the wrong decisions, Mm -hmm. more or less routinely make the political market make the wrong decisions. That the kind of problems economists worry about under the label of market failure in private markets come about when I'm taking an action where a large part of the cost or a large part of the benefit goes to someone else, so I don't take account of that. But in the political system almost all of the actions we take have that characteristic. One of my standard examples actually is from the judicial system. There is a particular appeals court case which was one that found a company that made vaccine liable for not doing enough to make sure that people who were vaccinated knew that there was a very tiny risk that the vaccine would give them the illness they were vaccinating against. This was the old polio vaccine, which there was later a a later one that wasn't true, but the, the original polio vaccine. And the case hinged on the question of whether a reasonable consumer might have decided not to get vaccinated if he only knew the things that the company was telling the doctors and nurses, but wasn't making sure the doctors and nurses told the people they vaccinated. And the court compared the annual risk of getting polio with the one-time risk of getting polio from the shot, found they were about equal, and said, therefore, you might decide not to get it. But, of course, the shot protected you from polio for your lifetime. More than one year so the right comparison would be the chance that you'll get polio from the shot versus the chance that you'll get polio in your life if you don't get the shot that would have been like thirty times as large. Amazing. So they made a mistake that I would have said that a bright high school student should be ashamed of the result of that was that for a while vaccines weren't being made until congress then stepped in in order to deal with the problem because the companies were afraid of liability. It's hard to believe that that mistake killed fewer than say a thousand people and yet, the, the judges who made it suffered nothing at all for them. It's incredible. And and that, but but it's true. Both quite generally, if a congressman uh, tomorrow votes either for or against the uh, health bill that the president is pushing, whether the bill is good or bad, either way, almost all of its consequences, all of its costs will be paid by other people. If, if it has benefits, its benefits will go to other people. So whereas. The standard market situation is the one where you bear most of the cost of what you do, get most of the benefit, and therefore you'll do it if benefits are larger than costs. The standard political situation has no such characteristic. So therefore, market failure would be more common uh, on the political market than on the private market. Now, that that, that doesn't prove you should never have government, because somebody might say, well, that's true in general, but here is some really critical case where I can show that market failure is very serious in the private market and therefore we need government. And might be true. I'm not, I don't want to overstate my case. I, I think one can argue that everything the government does could be replaced by private arrangements. Mm-hmm. But there are other intelligent and thoughtful people who don't agree with that conclusion. And those types of conversations are often the most fruitful conversations. I wonder, uh, we're
1: speaking with David Friedman, uh, David Friedman economist physicists by training originally and uh daviddfreeman.com david is the website and and mark just one more question I, I i'm very interested david oftentimes what we're talking about in economics and conversations uh in which people might engage you probably seem to be and i'll I'll use a term loosely here utilitarian in a way uh so what we're talking about is the moral aspect of freedom and individuality and defining the term moral itself uh, becomes, becomes... What do you mean, we? That's not what oh, I'm talking about. Yes, and, and, and this, is, this is what I wanted to talk to you about, because uh, people who are listening, they might be ta- talking about cost, benefits, effects. Every one of these instances, we're talking about people involved in this. Yes. And, and I was wondering... Um, when people talk about economics, do you think they lose sight of
8: the moral component of this? Of- I think what they lose sight of is the fact that costs and benefits are ultimately costs and benefits to people. Yes. That I think the very common mistake is they say when you say there's a cost, you mean there's a number on some corporation's accounting, right? and that's not a real cost. That's interesting only to the extent that it is a signal or a reflection of the fact that somebody had to spend time and effort digging uh, iron ore out of the ground or that somebody had to not eat an apple in order that it made be made into applesauce, that, that part of what you learn to understand in studying economics is that prices reflect costs and that it's therefore the price system is a sort of very elaborate signaling system. And therefore, when the corporation calculates that it costs it $15,000 to build this car, what that means, at least roughly, is that somewhere in the world there are human beings who will bear costs totaling $15,000, whether in hours of labor worked or in other goods they've produced or whatever, in order that the car is built. So and then, what the economist says is a well-functioning system is one where the value to the people who value the car is more than that price it gets built, if less than that price it does
1: So, David, then how do we look at the question that might be posed to you? To you, where where does the nexus? How do we look at the non-aggression principle that is so popular amongst libertarians within the context of? The economic argument, the costs and benefits. I'm, I'm an economist,
8: not a moral philosopher. This is, that's One of the reasons is that although like most people I have moral views, uh, unlike many libertarians, I don't think I can prove those moral views are correct. Mm-hmm. And therefore, I think a more sensible uh, strategy for persuading people of things is to say, look, your moral views and my moral views have a lot of overlap. All of us think that killing people is a bad idea, that for people to be hungry is unfortunate, that is in a general sense sort of almost everybody. Utilitarianism literally means saying that human happiness is all that matters. Most people don't really believe that. But most people do believe that human happiness is one of the really big things that matters. So my feeling is that if the economics, I can persuade you that legalizing drugs or abolishing the draft or cutting taxes or anything else would on the whole greatly increase human happiness that will probably persuade you to do it and i don't have to get into the argument of what you ought to want which is good because i don't have any really good arguments to show you what you ought to want okay so the idea of
1: not forcing really what we're talking about is we don't talk about the means we talk about the
8: ends in this case. I don't think that's right. We don't judge the means, we judge the means by their consequences.
6: Okay, very good. What
8: I'm arguing for is not literally utilitarianism, but I'm making consequentialist arguments in that I'm saying that when you want to defend the free market, or when you want to defend the idea that people shouldn't coerce each other, the way I want to defend it is showing that if they do that, bad things happen, rather than by
0: appealing to someone's intuition that coercion is bad. Thank you Dr. David Friedman. That's daviddfriedman.com. Um uh, and, and we'll be back. Free Talk Live, New Hampshire Liberty Forum. <laughs>
12: Hi, this is Larry Janeski of Larry Janeski's Basement Systems. I've been helping homeowners all across the country get the most out of their basements for 22 years. Right now, I'm going to bat for you. You won't believe how affordable a dry, usable basement can be. Call 888-600-1113 and take advantage of the economy to get the best deal in years. Now is the best time to fix your basement and keep your hard-earned money in your own pocket. Call 888-600-1113 or visit talkbasements.com and I'll give you $500 off your full perimeter basement waterproofing system. You can use your beautiful basement today for your child's playroom, a home office, or just extra storage. And don't pay a cent until 2010. I'll stand behind our work forever with a lifetime warranty. Call 888-600-1113 or visit talkbasements.com and I'll give you a free water watch alarm. Call 888-600-1113 or visit talkbasements.com.
0: It's Mark with you. And Gar. And we're live here at the New Hampshire Liberty Forum 2010, and it is awesome. Uh, I want to tell you real quick about Jurisdictionary at Jurisdictionary.com. You know, every contest involves rules, and every winner knows the rules and how to use them to their advantage. Jurisdictionary teaches you how to take your cases to court Without an expensive attorney, without all that investment, um, it, they, their claim is is that uh, the average eighth grader can learn it in less than 24 hours. So it's just a few pages, I, I guess uh, a few dozen pages to uh, to learn, and you'll understand the, the court system at jurisdictionary.com. It, the, the the course is $250, and, you know, I've, I'm working through it right now, and I do find it easy to understand. Jurisdictionary.com. Well, we continue from the New Hampshire Liberty Forum's
1: Great, great extravaganza here in Nashville, New Hampshire, at the Crown Plaza Hotel. Everybody having a good time. Yeah! With a live studio audience. Uh, Ian is away, and once again, thank you for letting me sit in, Mark. And uh, we have our next guest, Marco. Go for it, my man.
0: Radley Balco. You um, not only do you work for. Uh, you have your own blog, The Agitator, and I, I'm drawing a blank. Is it Reason magazine you work for? Yep,
6: I okay, uh, work for Reason magazine. That's uh, correct. You used to work for Fox maga- uh, Fox uh, News. I had a column with Fox News before Reason. I worked for the uh, the Cato Institute.
0: Okay, cool. Now um, you've been covering you know, thoroughly, extensively, the rise of the police state in in, in America. Um, it, it, how uh, you know? Even uh, Popular Mechanics magazine covered this. I think it was last year. I, I, I'm a subscriber. I get it. And This is trickling down to the average person, and they're, you know, people are becoming more and more concerned that the cops could make a mistake and bust through their door for some kind of uh, drug crime. Uh, Tell us about some of the things you've found.
6: Uh, well, I wrote a a paper for Cato on this in 2006, uh, and what I was trying to do is show uh, just the, the dramatic rise in the use of SWAT teams and the use of these sort of paramilitary-type forces. And what, what I found, uh, there's a, a professor at the University of Eastern Kentucky who's been surveying uh, the use of SWAT teams since about the early 1980s, and what he found is in the late 70s, there were about uh, two to 300 SWAT deployments per year uh, in the U.S., mostly for hostage situations, riots, barricades, that kind of thing, which is what SWAT teams are, were originally designed uh, to, to respond to. Uh, in the early 80s, when the Reagan administration really started taking the drug war very seriously, literally, I guess, um, the, the, we saw a lot of military equipment going from the Pentagon to local police departments across the country in some of these surplus programs. Uh, the number of SWAT teams jumped from about th- two to three hundred in the late 70s to about the early 80s. We're up to about two to three thousand, uh, and Krask estimates that now we're up to about 50,000 uh, SWAT deployments per year wow. uh, in the U.S. Holy! Uh, man. So that is a, a massive increase from two to three hundred to over 50,000 in about 40 years. Uh, there's an old Cold War saying. It's commonly attributed to Winston Churchill, but uh, I've I, I done some research and found he didn't. And there's no record of him actually saying it. But I think it, it does show the the change of mentality. And the saying is that uh, democracy means that when there's a knock on the door at 3 a.m., it's probably the milkman. Um, and it was a, a saying that sort of distinguished the way we do things here with the way they did them in the Iron Curtain. Mm-hmm. Uh, and not only does that saying really no longer apply anymore... Um, the government doesn 't even bother knocking uh, at this point. Uh, the no knock rate has, has become uh, way too prevalent for nonviolent crimes for low level drug crimes
0: Now, One would think that uh, SWAT teams are, are you know maybe necessary for, to if you've got yourself a you know, terrible murderer guy hold up in a house and uh, you know maybe he 's got a hostage or something like that, then you need a SWAT team, but it, it seems like ninety nine point some insert some number there uh, of them are used to bust people
6: for drugs. Yeah, I mean, there there is an an appropriate use for SWAT teams, and that's when you're diffusing an already violent situation. So you have someone who presents an immediate, imminent threat to other people or to the community. Uh, Then a SWAT team is appropriate because you're using violence to sort of bring down an already violent situation. Uh, When you use a SWAT team on a non-violent drug offender or other consensual crimes, we're seeing SWAT teams used to break up poker games now. Um, there was white a white collar crime.
0: Was it in 2007 where an optometrist who had a football pool go going was, I, you know, I, I'm going to say he was accidentally. I don't know what he, you know, if he was talking crap to the cops or what. Or well, he was, as I understand it, on his knees, handcuffed, shot in the head. Uh,
6: Sal, in, uh, in in Virginia. This is the Sal Colosi case. Yeah, Sal uh, Colosi was betting on some college football games in a bar. Uh, an undercover uh, police officer, police detective with the Fairfax County Police Department, overheard them. Uh, basically befriended them, started placing bets with Sal, uh, kept track until Sal placed enough bets with this cop to trigger the Virginia State Gambling Statute. Uh, at which point they sent the SWAT team. Uh, Colosi actually because they walk- couldn't
0: have just said you're under you're under arrest.
6: No, they they of course had to send the SWAT team. And they as as Colosi was walking out, uh, one of the officers uh, shot him directly in the heart uh, and killed him. Uh, the police say that the Uh, door to the SUV that the cop was getting out of, recoiled and bumped his elbow, causing the gun to fire to score a direct hit. Um, That's uh, implausible, I think, in in a lot of ways. Uh, The Colosi family, and I think this is probably the more likely explanation, uh, said Colosi had a uh, cell phone in his hand when he was shot, and they think the cop mistook that for a gun. Uh, But, I mean, the point is that, uh, you know, I I don't think the cop intended to to murder uh, Sal Colosi, but the point is that these raids are so volatile uh, and they're so confrontational, and there's such a low margin for error.
0: Right. When you've got, they com-
6: should only be used in these sort of extreme, kind of dangerous situations.
0: When you've got a police officer with an MP5 uh, submachine gun in his hands, it's it's a lot shorter distance to be able to fire that into somebody's heart accidentally than it is to be able to pull your service Glock out of your holster and you know then aim it and fire it at somebody.
6: Well, and, and the other problem here is there's a huge double standard. The cop that, that shot and killed Colosi got uh, two weeks uh, of unpaid yeah. leave, which is actually rare. They usually get paid suspension. Uh, and so when a cop makes one of these mistakes, um, they're almost always forgiven because of the volatile nature of the raid, which in a lot of ways is understandable, uh, except, you know, the police created those volatiles. Exactly. But, but when a person inside a house mistakes a cop for an, an armed intruder, you know, there to do their, them harm or do their family harm, they aren't given that same sort of consideration. And And the double standard is really exacerbated when you consider that, the whole purpose of these raids the police will tell you this is to take people off guard to surprise them to confuse them bewilder them get to them before they can they can you know grab a gun and fire back but you can't sort of have it both ways right you can't say we have to use these tactics to scare people and and confront them and surprise them and then when they make a mistake and think we're intruding you know uh, criminals there to to do them harm uh, and they shoot one of us well they should have known we were the cops all along i mean you can't make those those, right. those arguments side by side although they do <laughs> that was the Corey Mays case as I um, there actually there's been many circumstances
0: where um, people have busted the work police have busted into the wrong house and uh, in some cases uh, you know killed injured harmed
6: people yeah there was I mean uh, there have been cases just this year there was uh, well, actually two years ago uh, in Lima, Ohio uh, and here's the case where they had the right house this was a drug dealer whose house they broke into uh, but one cop uh, shot the drug dealers two dogs and the other cop was going up the stairs and miss took the sound of gunfire of his colleague shooting the dogs for hostile gunfire, saw some movement in a bedroom, and opened fire into the bedroom. Uh, in the bedroom, there was a 22-year-old mother on her knees, as the police were saying, holding her son, uh, She was, uh, Tarika Wilson. Uh, this is in Lima, Ohio. She was killed by the cop. Uh, her son's hand was blown off. Uh, so here's a case where you they had the right house. This was a drug dealer. Uh, but you still have this collateral damage. And, that, and that's really how the government views these these. Tragedies. These are these people are collateral damage. This is the drug war. It's very faceless. Um, it it's really terrible. is. I mean, it's it's you know it's uh, these are these are these people are our, the price we have to pay to uh, pretend that we're keeping our society free of drugs. So uh, tell people real quick about
0: the Corey May's case, because I'm sure that uh, not everybody knows about it.
6: Sure. Uh, Corey May was uh, in 2001. The day after Christmas, uh, was home with his 18 month old daughter in uh, Prentice, Mississippi. Uh, he was asleep in front of the TV. <clears throat> um, he lived in a duplex. Uh, had just moved into the duplex with his girlfriend and their daughter to sort of make a life for themselves. Uh, they lived next to a uh, known uh, known to the police drug dealer, a guy named Jamie Smith. Uh, the police had uh, gotten a uh, an informant. It was a real piece of work. We found out later, uh, but the informant had said that he had bought drugs from this from the duplex. Um, so they got a warrant. And, you know, it's not really clear what happened. They, there is a warrant for both sides of the duplex, but Corey May's name is nowhere on the warrant. Neither is his girlfriend's name. Jamie Smith's name does appear on the warrant. Uh, anyway, the police raid both sides of the duplex. Uh, Corey May had no prior criminal record, uh, had a uh, basically a burnt roach in the house that would have gotten him a $50 fine under any other circumstances. Uh, he wakes up at 1230 in the morning to someone trying to kick down the door to his house. Uh, he runs into the back bedroom where his daughter is, grabs a, uh, a handgun that he had from a nightstand, lays down on the floor next to his daughter, sort of hope, hoping the intruders would go away. Uh, they actually don't. They come around to the back. They kick open the back door. First cop in, Corey shoots three times, uh, hits the cop once, and went under the, um, the bulletproof vest, pierced the cop's ad- abdomen, uh, and the cop died on the way to the hospital. Uh, The cop's name was uh, Ron Jones. He happened to be the son of the town police chief uh, in Prentice, uh, Ron Jones Sr. Uh, Ron Jones was white. Corey May was black. Uh, This is in uh, uh, Jefferson Davis County, Mississippi, which is part of Mississippi. that's really uh, race isn't, not only is it prevalent, it's sort of a, a suffocating, pervasive part of everyday life. Uh, And Corey really didn't have a chance. I mean, he was convicted of capital murder, which is the the intentional killing of a police officer and and sentenced to death.
0: Radley Balco, uh, theagitator.com. Yep. And uh, Reason Magazine.
6: Yep. Thanks very much, Radley. Awesome work, man. Yeah, I was going to say, you
11: know.
0: Pre-Talk Live, it's your show, 1-800-259-9231. We are at the New Hampshire Liberty Forum, and it's Mark with you. And guard. And we've been doing uh, back-to-back interviews here. And uh, now with us we have uh, Tom Baugh. Tom, you wrote a book called uh, Starving the Monkeys, Fight Back Smarter. What does this t- Tell us your, your, your background and what this book's about.
13: Well, first of all, before we start talking about the book, I'd like to say thank you to the Free State Project for inviting me to speak this year at the 2010 Liberty Forum up here in New Hampshire. Um, My background, just briefly, is that I'm a former Marine officer. I went to the Naval Academy. I graduated in 88. I'm a veteran of Desert Storm. I've run my own companies for uh, probably about 15 years now, and I've learned a lot of things about running small businesses and, and... free trade, and the ways that the government gets in the way of people just wanting to take care of themselves and their families. And that's really ultimately what we want. We want to be able to take care of ourselves, take care of our families. And what drives us into activism is when things get in the way of that. So um, this is a really important time in our country, and um, people are getting more and more harassed and, and uh Backed into a corner economically, in many cases.
0: Yeah, more more of their paychecks are going to the government, and it's you know the government's cracking down uh, with the IRS on different people. Absolutely. And, and right. yet, the people who oppose this are looked at as the aggressors.
13: That's exactly bizarre. right. That's exactly right, and that's why the subtitle of the book is "Fight Back Smarter," mm-hmm. because the basic theme of starving the monkeys, fight back smarter, is that that all these encroachments on liberty, all the the abusive law enforcement, all of these things that that uh, seemed totally out of hand and the government is out of touch, is really, in in the theme of this book, is that that's what the majority of the people in this country want. And it seems weird to people that are like at a free state forum or a, a, a libertarian event to think that you may actually be in the the minority. And so if you're in the minority and you want liberty, and if the majority actually does want tyranny, you can't just do the normal things. You can't do the the voting, you can't do the educating, you can't do the protesting, the rallies, the suing, the begging, those things won't work. Because if you're in the minority, they don't care.
0: The majority gets their way.
13: Exactly. And so you've got to fight back smarter. You've got to learn different strategies that aren't what we would like to, to think of. it. We'd like to think that rules and truth and justice matter. And and to some extent, they still do, but it's, it's becoming obvious with the legislation we see coming down the pike that, um, there may be a time very soon when rules and truth and justice don't matter anymore. And Radley was talking earlier about some of the abuse of law enforcement. Well, um, people say things like, I'm, I'm gonna go get my gun or I'm gonna, you know, let them pry it out of my hands. Yeah. You know, well, I like to say uh, cold, dead hands won't win this war. I mean, if you, if you get your gun and you, you try to fight it out, they're just going to kill you.
0: And, and you know, the, the fact is there are multiple examples of that happening in American history, in, in the recent history.
13: Right, and there's a better way to go. And I talk about some of these things in the book. And um, one of the things to keep in mind is that the people who would defend their liberty, who would get out there and, and try to make something happen, or... Or even as some of the Free State Project people are seeing, that you just go out and say, I want to exercise my rights, and you get harassed. That's true. Right? Um, in many ways, just like with gun grabbing, uh, what they're trying to do is trying to intimidate you or trying to provoke you into reacting so that then they can throw the power of law at you. Right? And so we have to, have to look at it a different way and realize that these abusive things are not about just taking away your liberty. What they're trying to do is set up an evolutionary system to get rid of the, exactly the people that we're going to need later because we're headed for a collapse.
0: I and, think Bob, you know the United States government is spending itself into a collapse. There's I, I it's difficult right. for me to imagine else oh, something else. Right. All right. Yeah,
13: we're seeing small businesses and homeowners ruin, farmers are dismantling some of their infrastructure. So it's we're facing a time of irreparable economic damage. Uh the IRS enforcement this summer is probably gonna be worse than it has ever been because the revenues are dropping off.
0: And clearly, and don't forget they're gonna be doing the, uh, the 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 new medical program too. If you don't wanna i a gonna be there right.
1: enforcing Absolutely. that too. They're the ones enforcing the Treasury Department. And I think clearly uh we have already reached the point of lawlessness and we reached it a long time ago. It's just right. that not enough people realize it or enough people don't care.
13: Right. That exactly. they're
1: getting the advantages. I mean to talk for warned about this in the early eighteen hundreds. And right. we're we're there.
13: It's right, happening. Absolutely. And the message that the majority is sending to people who love liberty is basically stay in your cage. And in the context of starving the monkeys, don't threaten our banana supply. They're trying to get you to just bow down and take care of them. And it's, it's time, uh, you know, Atlas Shrug friends will, will see the theme. Um, it's time to stop feeding them. And unfortunately, unlike an Atlas Shrugged, where you know, things got bad, and then when it got halfway bad, everybody decide, oh, okay, we're going to stop you, right, we're going to give you your liberty back, and we're going to give you your freedom back. That's not the way it is. When, when things start getting bad, people are going to demand, the majority who are oppressing us, they're going to demand even more. And that's going to cause an avalanche effect that will just totally... Collapse everything.
0: Now, when you say the majority, and I, I think it may be right because now, um, as I understand it, this is—I've I've heard this statistic somewhere. I don't have it all sitting right here in front of me, but more than 50% of Americans work for the government, either through as a, um, a you know a bureaucrat on a state, local, or federal level, or they have contracts. They work for a company that has contracts with the government, and right. the, yeah, therefore, yeah. you know, you, you, we have a nation of bureaucrats. Right, and beyond that, everybody who benefits from a regulation.
13: Like if you if you have a license to do some vocation, mm-hmm. you're benefiting from a government monopoly. Are you going to want that status quo to change?
1: Absolutely right. Probably not. Yeah,
13: yeah. I mean, it doesn't mean that everybody who's in one of those classes is a bad person. It just means they have have a propensity to depend on the status quo, and that bias is a very very dangerous force that I don't think enough people are awake to yet.
1: But Tom, what, what first of all, uh, people want to find the book. Where right. should they go?
13: They can go to starving, i n g. The Monkeys, K-E-Y-S, I think I spelled that right.
1: Not Mickey Dolan's and Davy Jones. Right. right. <laughs> Starvingthemonkeys.com. Okay. And, and what would you, can you give us some examples of what people would find and well, the approach that you would suggest? Yeah, to tell, tell a solution.
13: Okay. That, that's a good point. All struggles in history are economic. And so what I present in this, this book is ways of recapturing the basic economics of how we are supposed to live with each other. We're supposed to trade value for value, and we've we've been bred away from that. We've been trained to not even think in those terms. And so, um, I give some tutorials in there of some basic economic principles that nobody's learning in school anymore. No, nobody's taught for a long, long time. And, uh, and unfortunately, it's 400 book, 400 pages, so it's a, a lot more than we can go into here. But there's there's a lot of basic economic training. There's some uh, materials that you need to go out and get. Um, to, to refresh yourself, Atlas Shrugged is one of those. Uh, Adam Smith, Wealth of Nations. Uh, there, there's a whole series of things that people need to learn in order to learn what an economy actually is and what free trade means. What we've been experiencing in this country is not free trade. It's All corporatism. Right. It's, it's a regulatory environment that benefits large businesses and weeds out the little guy. Yeah, it's you, trade, you it but again. it's right. not free trade. Exactly. Right. And so it's hard for people uh, to get their mind around especially if they've been isolated. If we are in the minority, imagine the guy who's never heard this message, never heard uh, the free state people, never heard any of these uh, independence things. They could feel like they're all by themselves. And the fight back smarter part, I want to throw this out real quick. If you're out there and you feel like you're at the end of the rope, I want you to hang in there because the future after the collapse is going to belong to those of us who know how to create value. And your oppressors are going to go away soon. Uh, the, when when the tyranny starts, what that means is they're about to go away because they can't. They can't feed all these people, mm. right?
0: Mm. So right. Well, um, People in the government don't produce anything. They don't exactly. grow food. They, right. they don't tra- transport that food to the grocery store. They don't stock it on the shelves. They don't do anything but steal money out of the pockets of each one of the people right. that does that.
1: Right, and yeah. so if
13: you're feeling like you're under the rope, get back to those basic economic principles and wait because your time will come.
1: And, Tom, on economics, I know we're, we're running up against the clock very soon. On economics, do you see, uh, based on what the central bank, the Federal Reserve, the Treasury Department, the various administrations going back for years? years and not even not just this one and both parties have done regarding the infusion of liquidity into the system Uh, do you see a future coming of uh, very very bad inflationary uh, problems that could be so bad that uh, people better start getting prepared now.
13: Gardner don't you know that asking that question makes you a conspiracy theorist and maybe even a domestic terrorist that's
1: right
0: (laughs) 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 of course yeah we're gonna that's gonna have a major effect. Starvingthemonkeys.com yes sir Thank you very much, Tom Baugh. And thank you for having me. Thanks, Tom.
10: This Your Family
2: Today tip is brought to you by Nestle Juicy Juice, creators of the Juicy Juice Brain Development and Juicy Juice Immunity Fruit Juice Beverages. For more information, visit us at JuicyJuice.com. When it comes to staying healthy, the digestive system is a great place to start. It's 70% of the immune system. Look for kid-friendly foods that are high in fiber, like popcorn and yogurt. Prebiotic fiber helps the good bacteria in the gut flourish, while simple sugars like high fructose corn syrup only help the bad, leading to bloating and discomfort. For more tips like these, visit us at Parenthood.com slash Your Family Today.
0: Free Talk Live, coming to you live from the New Hampshire Liberty Forum 2010. It has been a busy, busy weekend here. Uh, you know, I've been doing introductions for the all the, the people that are speaking. There have been dozens of them. Hundreds of people have come to the event, and we are now doing back-to-back interviews. Our next, uh, this is Mark with you. And Gard. And um, real quick before we go on, I want to tell you about the IHS's summer seminar program. It's now accepting applications. They have 11 different seminars. And cities across the country they provide that's the institute for humane studies they provide the meals and the housing all you have to do is if you're in in college you know in college going into college apply by march the thirty-first at libertarian seminars it's libertarian seminars and Right now we have a Boston Tea Party with us.
9: Hello, Mark. Good to be here.
0: Thanks. You are a prolific writer, and um, we're going to do an interview, but I want to take this. We have a call that came in, and sure. uh, he was for the last guest, but, you know, I'm going to take his call anyway. Frank from Ohio.
5: Hi, fellas. Hey, uh, I, I like to help connect the dots for your listening audience so they make it simple for them to understand. My question to Mr. Barr was uh, connect the dots for people while he was uh, having the interview with you to connect the how the Treasury Department will be connected to the health care spending
0: right uh, Gardner can handle that one yeah we're
1: talking Timothy Geithner in the IRS because uh, there will be a fine uh, if you and this is this is one of the, the big economic chess pieces that they've moved in thank you Frank yeah, thanks a lot, Frank. Uh, just very quickly, and, and and Boston can address this uh, probably specifically or on a wider scale uh, as mm-hmm. far as the movement of the United States goes. But uh, the U.S. government in this in this bill, which will probably pass, uh, be passed tomorrow in a very Byzantine, bizarre way. That doesn't really matter whether it's a legal way or it's not a legal way. They're going to do whatever the hell they want. Um, and and what they want to do is force insurance companies to accept people with pre-existing conditions. I've always said this. This is the linchpin. On how they will raise prices for individual policy or uh, or uh, businesses that have health insurance, uh, they will force people, the insurance companies, to accept people with pre-existing conditions. Now, the insurance companies in turn have said, "Wait a minute, wait a minute. What's going to happen is people are going to wait till they get sick, then they're going to get their insurance, and then uh, our all rates are going to go up because only the sick people are going to have insurance. So we need to have healthy people in our pools. So the government." responded by saying well we will find people uh, and it's a two thousand five hundred dollar fine it's also on a scale up to a certain amount of your income and and the fine is not really steep enough to make it much of a penalty for right. people not to get insurance right and so insurance
0: for my family now is going to be more than three hundred dollars at um, A month, and that is more than twenty five hundred dollars exactly. a year. Exactly. So if I can't, and and an insurance company is uh, forced to take me whenever I'm ill, so I have a heart attack, I, I you know I give them a call. Right, it's cheaper for me to just pay the the fine to the government than it is for me to carry health insurance. And you're right. This right. is a stupid system with bad incentives. And those are the chess
1: piece mm. dynamics that get you to the point where Treasury Secretary Timothy Geithner and the IRS will be the ones who come knocking on your door because you're going to have to. Uh, confirm this on your uh, internal revenue uh, April 15th uh, thing. So welcome Boston on such a fine
0: and wonderful piece of news. Thanks Gardner. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> now, Boston Tea Party, you um, th- there's there's a competing organization to the Free State Project and it's called Free State
9: West? FreeStateWyoming.org okay. um, and I would say complimenting and not competing. All right. <laughs> it, it may have seemed as competition from one aisle to the other a few years ago but you know, we we've worked it out. It's like you know, y'all are yeah. here, we're there, and I don't uh, think competition's unhealthy. No, I I don't either. But and there's enough to go around. Um, had that's, Wyoming that's won point. the Free State Project vote, I think some folks out here in New Hampshire would have started Free State New Hampshire, just Maybe. because there's yeah. enough market for an eastern alternative, just like there was vice versa for the west. So so tell us about
0: it. I have never been to uh, well, I've been to Wyoming, but I you know, Free State Wyoming wasn't going on at that time, I, so I'm not familiar. Come right. on,
9: um, I was a uh, participant before the vote uh, in the FSP and had opted in for Montana, Wyoming, and uh, Idaho. Not Alaska? Not Alaska, okay. no. But uh, my view of a free state success is that it would require a sparsely populated state. That seems to me to be the, the universal ingredient to an existing freedom in, in culture. And once you have too many people per square mile, things tend to go south. Everyone, you know, gets unreasonable and says there ought to be a law, and then there is. Mm-hmm. So that's why Wyoming, at six people per square mile, was attractive to me, amongst other reasons. So it's dar- darn close to the least populated state in the nation. It's the least populated, but only the second uh, most sparsely populated. Okay, you know, Alaska has uh, fewer uh, more, fewer people per square per mile, right. but more people in the state. Okay, it didn't used to be that way, but Wyoming has about five hundred fifty thousand. Um, the free state Wyoming has had. Uh, about 100 movers come to the state. Our, our statement of intent is a little different from the FSPs, whereas it's not uh, tied to any uh, number that has to join first and then it kicks off the move. At the FSW, once you sign your statement of intent, we expect you here in seven years. Okay, mm-hmm. So we've got uh, a few earlier movers and a percentage of our participating signers. And most of us in the northeast corner, I would say. We've got dozens of people there. We've got a fantastic shooting and camp out weekend that we do every year in June. And we had about 100 people last year and about 150 people expected this year. It's expanding. What's in the northeast corner of uh, Wyoming? Uh, It's in the north and eastern corner of the state. I got that part. What's what's there? Uh, What city? um, The Devil's Tower there? Devil's Tower is there in Crook County and so forth. Uh, The Black Hills from South Dakota spill over into Wyoming. So you're in Dakota country? Lakota? Oh, absolutely. yeah. Oh, awesome. In area. It's, it's very, very pretty cool. country, a lot of game if you like to hunt, and uh, you can ski nearby. There's two major airports within an hour, so there's a lot going on for us in the northeast. I don't part. hunt. I'm afraid the deer will win.
1: <laughs>
9: if you're afraid, then they will win. What, yeah, what,
1: what are you getting? Uh, you know, Boston, you've got you've got tons of books out, and let's mention uh, let's mention some of the books. I, I've I've uh, brought it up before, and uh, we had over at Liberty Conspiracy, we had a great production by Glenn Jacobs. Oh right, and he uh, referred to hologram of Liberty a lot. A just mm-hmm. terrific, terrific book about Thank how you. the Constitution. Uh, seems to have either been intentionally set up by the lawyers who uh, wrote it right. to be uh, not a protector of freedom, or as Lysander Spooner says, it was highly inadequate right. to hold up the task. What What are you hearing from the people who are coming out to Wyoming now, um, as we're we're feeling the effects of this lack of not only sticking into the Constitution, but the mm-hmm. Constitution not stopping this from happening?
9: Yeah. Um you can make a big difference in your life depending on where you live in the country. That's, that's the point of the free state movement. And anybody going from New York to New Hampshire will feel a positive difference immediately. The same thing if you move from California to Wyoming. You'll feel an immediate positive change, a breath of fresh air. Um, folks are realizing that nationally politics probably aren't going to improve. We just don't have leverage at that level. But we can have a statewide leverage. And until we have a a strong statewide leverage, you can have a local positive benefit to just going from a better state to a better state. So uh, I think people are giving up on national politics, their expectations they had, Mm. and having more reasonable local and state um, expectations, which I think we can achieve.
1: And then then other books that you've written have addressed certain specific Mm. issues. And I don't know if you would like to address how people are worried about those things when they're coming to wyoming or what the benefits might be of uh, looking into the Free state wyoming project to find people who are they're worried just just like you
9: are and you were sounding sure. alarms years ago yeah i was uh you know someone like me writing books you're running around with binoculars on your head going look out you know and it's still five years away or ten years away but it is coming. It was there something to see. It is coming. And uh, now you don't need the binoculars on your head anymore. It's right there for everyone. Boston, we're up against the clock. Understood. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Check out his books, everybody. JavelinPress.com. Free talk live. Thank you.
4: Free Talk Live amplifiers get access to higher-quality archives free of commercial breaks and other perks. Join AMP for just $3 per month at amp.freetalklive.com. Free Talk Live, we
0: are live at the New Hampshire... Liberty Forum 2010, it has been uh, an interview after interview tonight on the show. Thanks, everybody, for uh, listening listening to all our great guests. Great time. Yep. I want to tell you about knobs. Interknobs. That's I-N-T-E-R-K-N-O-B-S dot com. They are sponsor of the show. They provide you with knobs and pulls for your kitchen or bath. If you're thinking about remodeling or building something new, check out the big box stores. Check out Home Depot. Check out Lowe's. Check out those places. But buy your knobs and pulls. Once you find the kind you want and get to touch them and hold them, go to uh, interknobs.com because they've got them there and they've got them there less. It's a wholesale site. You can use code FTL to save ten percent, or excuse me, eleven percent off your order. That's code FTL. And they've also got a closeout section that's fifty to eighty percent off. Plus you get the discount on top of that. interknobs.com code FTL.
1: Well, Mark, it's been an amazing time so far, and uh, we highly recommend that people uh, check out the State Project. and PreStateProject.org? Uh, absolutely, and uh, we're very glad that uh, I'm very glad to be here. And uh, I want to thank you for letting me come in. I'll, I'll let you just take over, introduce our next guest and so on, and uh, thanks, Ian, for letting me fill in, too. I know we're reaching towards the end of the show. You and your pleasantries. Um, so
0: <laughs> we've got we've had big names all night. Uh, this is one of the big ones. Yeah, this is one of the big ones. This is a guy I've been reading for a long time. Oh. Hold your hats, folks. It's Jacob Hornberger from the Future of Freedom Foundation. Yay! F, 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 yes! Now, Jacob, you, you're certainly one of the premier speakers. You're all over the country speaking about liberty. And, um, you know, people are thinking more about liberty now than they have in my lifetime, at least since the at least since the contract with America back in the 90s. By the way, they broke the contract. And, um, you know, now liberty is really on people's mind and Healthcare is on people's mind. They're jamming it down our throats. What's going to happen?
7: Yeah, well, these are exciting times because uh, for the first time, as far as I think in my lifetime, ever increasing numbers of people are asking questions. And when people are asking questions, there's a chance they'll get to the solution as compared to what we've seen in the past where everybody just robotically says yes or yes or to the big ever growing state. Um, but healthcare is a good example of this. I mean, you know, the, the government, as you know, every statist in the world won't take responsibility for their debacles. And healthcare is a good example of this. And uh, they they enacted Medicare and Medicaid in the 60s under Johnson, who of course had been inspired by Roosevelt's socialist programs Absolutely. and the New Deal. Yeah. And people warned them. I mean, the libertarians at that time, the advocates of liberty at that time, said, you go down this socialist road, and you're going to end up with nothing but crises in health care, and you're going to dis- ultimately destroy America's health care system, which was the finest in the world. It was based totally on the free market principle. And uh, Yeah, 50, 60 years ago, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And so, of course, now it's all coming to fruition. And so, but what do they say? They say, "Oh, this is all because of the free market." Oh, it's this is this.
1: one of the most. Uh, Jacob, I'm so glad you're here. Uh, you know, uh, one of my friends in the in the freedom community is Sheldon Richmond. Sheldon, awesome, awesome guy, and. Um he's you know i do i did some writing for free here and there and and mises here and there and you know all these different organizations and here are the libertarians saying here's the deal fdr institutes wage and price controls and what happens companies try to offer non-monetary compensation compensation the market responds to these perverse incentives in in various ways. So what happens? Then they come up with Medicare and Medicaid. So what happens? Then in the 70s, they have tax incentives for group insurance. They do all these things, and then various states, we were talking in another segment, various states have already instituted what they're proposing on a federal level, mandating to insurance companies that they have to accept people with preexisting conditions. And now everybody wonders why their private health insurance policies are going through the roof. And they complain to government, and government says, Well, these insurance companies are hurting people. Barack Obama had a speech in Ohio where he highlighted a letter by a woman who said, I can't afford my health insurance. I'm going to drop my health insurance. It's gone up 40%, 60%, 30% every year. Well, if you look back at it, Ohio passed almost nine years ago a law forcing insurance companies to accept people with pre existing conditions. Of course, it goes up. But only people like you explain this to people, but it seems that you are noticing that people are catching on.
7: And maybe it's too late to stop this, but... Well, it may be too late to stop this, but in the long run, I mean, people need to figure out that this is what Ludwig von Mises was talking about when he said that one government intervention inevitably leads to more interventions. And you couldn't find a better example of that than in health care. Every time they have a crisis... What do they propose? A new intervention to solve the problems from the previous intervention. And so everybody stops thinking about, why don't we just pull the weed out by its original root? Right. Notice that nobody in all these health care plans is saying, why don't we just repeal Medicare and Medicaid on the demand side, get rid of occupational licensure on the supply side, as Milton Friedman, a Nobel laureate economist, proposed many years ago. There is your solution. But as long as you uh, accept the premise of the socialistic welfare state and you fall into this thing of, I can come up with a reform, I can come up with a reform, then you're going to end up with these debacles for the rest of your life. Yes, yes.
0: You know, um, <laughs> it's, it's surprising that uh, you know, the government never comes out and says, oh, sorry for getting involved in messing things up, we'll just step out.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's not going to happen. And and, and people <laughs> wonder, Mark and, and Jacob, people wonder how much of this is intentional, how much of this is accidental, coincidental, um, and it really doesn't matter in the end. The, the The nature of government is to continue doing these things because, of course, you know the public choice theorists have, have already noted that the special interests have incentives to go in and try to get the legislation passed, and the politicians have an interest. The, the emotional face of the person without health insurance seems to trump the economic and logical arguments and the historical examples that we can give of how those people who couldn't afford insurance could afford insurance if it we're left to the free market with competition bringing down costs and better better products. Do you think that? Do you think that tomorrow is going to be a vote? And obviously we're concentrating on this subject, but there's so many other subjects. And if people go to the, your website and they can check out everything. Um, do you have any predictions and predictions about the vote tomorrow, and then predictions about what might happen after that?
7: well I, I'm the worst predictor in the world when it comes to these these politicians but from what I read in the paper they're already cutting deals with Democrats that lets them off the hook and, and vote against it so they don't lose votes in their district which which sort of implies to me they've got the necessary numbers to get it passed I and mean, that's the game they play yeah. and um, but I think what's really critically important is is that we raise people's vision to a much bigger level than just trying to stop this thing. Because you're going to spend the rest of your life trying to stop every one of these interventions. What we're really trying to do in this freedom movement, libertarian movement, whatever label you want to put on it, is restore the overall heritage of what it once meant to be free. No more income tax. No more IRS. No more Medicare. No more Medicaid. No more Social Security. No more welfare. No more warfare. Then all of a sudden you're talking about a free society, and by the way, that's the way Americans live for more than 125 years. Absolutely
1: right. You know, Mark, I've mentioned a few times that book, The Tragedy of American Compassion by Marvin Alaski. and that's a great example, and there are other ones um, from, um, uh, from Freedom to the Welfare State and the different, different types of books that have shown what Americans used to do. And we, we mentioned to Tocqueville earlier in the program, that he came over to do a study of American prisons. And he ended up being so fascinated by the civic organizations that were out there. And it seems that people just don't yet grasp it. And I'm so glad that you're out there working. What would you recommend to people today uh, if they're seeing what's happening? We know the Republicans are going to probably come in and get more votes if this thing passes tomorrow. And so they'll, they'll get more votes in the next election. But I am very fearful that there are too few Republicans out there who understand economics as libertarians understand economics, to be able to say, okay, when we're repealing various aspects of this, we're also going to repeal this and this and this that will set for more failure. See, what I think they'll do is they'll leave in the pre-existing condition mandates. They'll leave in those things that will force the insurance companies to go up. They'll do things like a, a reinsurance pool or some some high-risk pool that the uh, the companies will have to invest in. And in the long run, we're going to be back here in four years, even if the Republicans or five years or six years, even the Republicans... Uh, repeal this is there have you noticed and it seems like you're hopeful in a way that more people are picking up on the economics. They're learning about the economics. The, the maybe the nexus of political economics.
7: Are they picking up on this? Not the politicians. I mean, to me, there's not a dime's worth of difference between a Republican and a Democrat. Right. I mean, they both love big government. With the exception of Ron Paul, of course. But the rest of them, they love big government. They look for the opportunities to try to save and fix the welfare state and the warfare state. They're taking away our civil liberties. And uh... The only hope lies with the American
0: people. And that's where we got to start looking. Jacob Hornberger, Future of Freedom Foundation. How can people find you? FFF.org, all our stuff's there.
10: This program is brought to you by Freekeen.com. Freekeen.com features audio, video, and blogs chronicling the transition to a voluntary society. Freekeen.com also has comments and discussion forums so you can be heard. Freekeen.com.
0: Free Talk Live coming to you live from the New Hampshire Liberty Forum 2010. It's Mark with you Vanguard. and Garth, uh, and you know it, it, it's just been a staccato, uh, you know, interview one after another here, and now we've got on with us Dan Mitchell from Cato, uh, the Cato Institute, cato.org. that's correct. So Dan, you handle what fiscal policy over there? Um, do lots of radio interviews. What do you What do you think is the the, the most dangerous thing facing the United States uh, from an economic standpoint right now?
14: well certainly the prospect of government-run health care passing tomorrow would be high on the list but but let me look at the other side of the fiscal ledger the tax side uh... of course we have a monstrous, uh, monstrous internal revenue code but if i was to pick out one thing that's gonna hit us next five years probably the politicians in washington are salivating over a value-added tax that's what they need if they want to bring government to european welfare state levels uh... they need that giant new source of revenue And if that ever happens, then it's not just a case of people moving to New Hampshire as part of the Free State Project. We better move the Free State Project to the Cayman Islands or something because America, as we know it and love it, will be lost.
0: So this value-added tax, what would it look like?
14: A value-added tax is basically a national sales tax, but it's not like the fair tax that some of my uh, tax reform friends are in favor of. A value-added tax is hidden inside the price of products and, and this is the critical thing, it would be an add-on tax, so we would have the horrible IRS, the entire internal revenue code, but then we would have layered on top of it this giant uh, a fi- financing mechanism for the welfare state, which is exactly what happened in Europe.
0: Now this is added on at every layer of uh, you know how a, a product's produced. So if you've uh, you know if they cut down the tree, the the lumber guy, uh, the, the tree guy adds a vat, uh, the lumber mill adds a vat, the uh, you know the, the whatever they the, turns the, into the cabinet, the cabinet maker adds a vat, and then the I guess the retailer adds a vat too, and the retailer adds a vat.
14: In theory, if you have a twenty percent vat, which is you know actually lower than the average in Europe, but if you had a twenty percent vat, it would be the same. As a 20% just regular consumer sales tax, but you wouldn't know it, which is why the experience we've seen in Europe, it's so easy to raise because consumers have no idea it's happening. They blame it on, oh, those greedy businesses keep raising prices, but it's the value-added tax being uh, increased by politicians to finance more corrupt vote-buying.
5: Right,
0: because when uh, somebody goes and buys a Coca Cola at the at the convenience store for 99 cents, I don't know what convenience store you can still do that at, but um, you buy the Coca Cola for 99 cents, and then you go up to the register and it costs you a dollar ten. At the very least, they understand that that 11 cents is going to the government. Um, they you know they they, may, they might have been surprised, they may not understand it. So if it went from 99 cents to a dollar 19, they'd be like, wow, the government's getting a big chunk here. But since the value added tax is hidden inside. They wouldn't see it. they just say, darn it, coca is charging too much. Exactly. And, and this, but
14: let's keep in mind, the real problem driving this is government is getting bigger and bigger. Uh, Milton Friedman famously told us that the ultimate tax is the size of government, because whether they finance it by borrowing out of the productive sector of the economy, taxing or printing money... It's all the same. Resources are being transferred from where they're used efficiently and productively to the political process where they're used for vote-buying. I don't want to use economic jargon about inefficiency and resource allocation, but there's a reason why Hong Kong grows faster than America, and there's a reason why America grows faster than France. The bigger the government, the more corrupt and inefficient the way the economy works.
1: This is uh, Dan. I'm so glad you brought that up because with the government spending that's been going on, they only have a few ways to try to handle this spending. They can try to issue bonds. Nobody's going to buy the bonds because they know the bonds are going to be paid back with worthless bills. They can increase taxes. As you say, people, if they become aware of it, will go up in arms. Or they can print money, they can monetize the debt. Uh, monetizing has already really begun, and people aren't really talking about it. This, that, uh, could we say an analog might be when people go to their gas tank, gas pumps and they're pumping gas, there is nothing labeled. In fact, it's illegal to put on how much is tax that they're paying in their gas gasoline prices. The same thing will start to happen for all products.
14: Exactly. Very few Americans understand that, what is it, I think, 44 cents out of every gallon of gas is, is taxation on average. It's Yeah, it's an average. Uh, depending on your state. Uh, n- no one understands that. Uh, And if you go to Europe and you talk to people in European countries, when I'm over there giving speeches, uh, they don't really know how much is the VAT. They might have weighed – not wasn't it 22 percent, but they just don't know every time that they're buying something that government is getting a huge chunk of the money. And at the end of the day, again, this is what I come back to – if we want to have any chance of rescuing America from big government, we better stop this.
0: You know, um, I, the, the that's a huge issue. But we just talked on, on monetizing the debt, and what that uh, brings up in my mind is I've seen a chart recently where they're talking about the number of dollars printed per year, or something like that. And it looks like a it looks like a cliff. It just shoots up <laughs> in two thousand and nine, like off stick. the top. You know, it's, it's trickling down here at the bottom, and then vroom, it's, it's through the ceiling. What, explain that to me, Dan. Uh, you probably saw a
14: chart looking at something called the monetary base. I don't want to put uh, your listeners M zero or anything like that. <laughs> but, but we did have a big increase in money creation. Let's just keep it very basic. Uh, when we when we hit the financial crisis. Now, this hasn't broken out into general inflation because banks are sitting on all this money. And there is a big question among financial markets and Fed watchers. What's going to happen? You know, let's knock on wood, assuming and hoping the economy begins to pick up all this excess liquidity out there will the fed do the responsible thing and soak it up Uh, a lot of people are worried that they won't because bernanke has shown himself to be basically very pliable uh... to the political uh, class in washington and a know, i'm sure all of us share concerns about the entire structure of the fed and things like that but we have it. Let's at least hope that they behave independently and try to protect the value of the dollar. And Bernanke has shown that he might as well have an office in the in the White House because he <laughs> listens to the politicians uh, and doesn't do the right thing for
6: markets. So right.
0: So um, the, it's my understanding that the, the fact that they printed so much money isn't quite as disastrous as I might imagine, like Weimar Germany, kind of uh, disastrous, because uh, the banks are writing off debt at the same time, and because these these loans, these bad housing loans that were created by the Fed in the first place, um, that the, the, those that money's kind of disappearing into those. Is that right? Yeah.
14: Banks now have huge reserves, and they actually now get paid interest by the Fed. So banks are perfectly content to sit on their hands and leave these big piles of money at the Fed because they're getting interest on, on those reserves. But at some point, you know, yes. that's not exactly a route to big profits. So sure. at some point, if the economy picks up, banks would like to use that money, but it's too much. Uh, there's too much liquidity. And, and again, as I just said, will Bernanke do the right thing? thing. Now, now I, I don't want to get again into the jargon, but yeah. if you're into monetary policy, you know there's something called velocity of money. And what happened with the financial crisis is velocity changed a lot. And so when velocity changes a lot, you can change your stock of money and it's not going to have the traditional effect on inflation that we might otherwise expect. But again, that's why we have to look when the economy picks up, what is Bernanke going to
0: do? So uh, besides the, the VAT tax and, um, you know, uh, socialized medicine coming to this country, which are terrible things, um, is, are you bullish or are you bearish on the economy in general? I mean, a lot of people are saying, you know, the next shoe has not yet dropped and, you know, buy an extra dog just so you have something to eat, that kind of, that, that kind of disastrous <laughs> stuff.
14: Well, first, <laughs> let me say something about health care. We're already probably 65% socialized now. Forty-six cents out of every dollar is directly financed and health care is financed by the government, Medicare and Medicaid. And then the supposedly private part of our health care system is so driven by government regulations and the health uh, care exclusion in the tax code, only 12 cents out of every dollar is directly paid for out of pocket by consumers. No wonder we don't have a functioning uh, market anymore in healthcare. Now
0: does that include um, things like uh, cosmetic surgery and stuff like well, that? Th- this is the interesting thing.
14: If you want to see where a free market actually works in healthcare, laser eye surgery and yep. cosmetic surgery. Veterinarian. Why because people pay out of pocket. And what do we see in those isolated sectors of the healthcare economy? Falling prices, rising quality, consumer satisfaction. But when we have this giant third party payment problem because completely because of government policy we have widespread dissatisfaction of rising prices. If you tell me, Dan, you know what? For the next five years, every time you go out to eat, I'm paying 88 cents out of every dollar.
0: You're going to eat out more. You're gonna I'm going to eat out, well, I'm eat out best, more, and, I'm, and I'm not going to go
14: get those dollar McChicken sandwiches at McDonald's anymore. Mm. I'm going to go to the fancy steakhouses because someone's paying 88 cents on the dollar. That's what's happened to health care. Providers don't have an incentive to uh, even advertise their prices consumers don't have an incentive to shop you know and this is what jacob was just talking about in the previous segment government has so destroyed the healthcare sector so really as bad as what obama's doing is he's taking our economy our healthcare sector from 65% socialized to probably 79% socialized bad but you know we're already most of the way down the road
0: Dan Mitchell, Cato.org. You guys got so much, so many papers there that people can read on uh, different fiscal policy. Uh, Thank you very much for being on the show.
1: Thank you. Great work, Dan. Thank you. Free Talk Free Talk Live.